This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Stuart Dybeck's story, Paper Lantern. The desire to touch her is growing unbearable, and yet I don't want to stop, don't want the drive to end. I'm waiting for you, she says. The story was chosen by Zizi Packer, the author of the story collection Drinking Coffee Elsewhere. She's currently working on her first novel, an excerpt from which appeared in the magazine's 20 Under 40 issue last summer. Hi, Zizi. Hi, Deborah. Stuart Dybeck has been publishing short fiction and poetry for more than 30 years. He did an MFA at the Iowa Writers' Workshop, and he taught there. Was he teaching there when you were a student? Yes, he was a visiting professor during my last year there. And I just recall that no one was able to break down a story the way Stuart Dybeck was able to. And he just had all these incredible insights in terms of how stories operated, and he thought of them almost as sort of organic living beings. So he's been a major, I don't know if I'd say influence on my work, but but someone I always at least hope to be influenced by. And Paper Lantern, the story you chose today, what is it about this one that's that's special for you? I love how the story is these sort of nesting dolls or this kind of way in which you think it's about one thing, and then it turns out oh, then you're thinking it's about something else, and then you're thinking about something else and something else. And there are these frames that keep getting progressively smaller when you look at the story, the heart of the story. But in terms of image and memory and sort of awareness about the world, it's kind of expanding ever progressively outward. So by the time you finish the story, you've gone really, really deep inside of what it means to have these memories and what it means in terms of how memory warps time and space. So that's why I love it. It gives me the chills every time I read it. (laughs) Wonderful. Well, we'll talk some more after the story. Now here's Zizi Packer reading Paper Lantern by Stuart Dybeck. We were working late on the time machine in the little makeshift lab upstairs. The moon was stuck like the whirl of a frozen fingerprint to the skylight. In the back alley, the breaths left behind by yowling toms converged into a fog slinking out along the streets. Try as we might, our measurements were repeatedly off. In one direction, we'd reached the border at which clairvoyants stand gazing into the future. And in the other, we'd gone backward to the zone where the present turns ghostly with memory and yet resists quite becoming the past. We'd been advancing and retreating by smaller and smaller degrees until it had come to seem as if we were measuring the immeasurable. Of course, what we really needed was some new vocabulary of measurement. It was time for a break. Down the broken escalator, out the blue-lit lobby past the shuttered newsstand, through the frosty fog, hungry as strays we walk, still wearing our lab coats, to the Chinese restaurant around the corner. It's a restaurant that used to be a Chinese laundry. When customers would come for their freshly laundered bundles, the cooking wafting from the owner's back kitchen through the warm haze of laundry steam smelled so good that the customers began asking if they could buy something to eat as well. And so the restaurant was born. It was a carryout place at first, but they've since wedged in a few tables. 
None of us can read Chinese, so we can't be sure. But since the proprietors never bothered to change the sign, presumably the Chinese characters still say it's a Chinese laundry. Anyway, that's how the people in the neighborhood referred to it: the Chinese laundry. As in, man, I had a sublime meal at the Chinese laundry last night. Although they haven't changed the sign, the proprietors have added a large red-ribbed paper lantern, their only nod to decor, that spreads its opaque glow across the steamy window. We sit at one of the five formica tables, our favorite beside the window, and the waitress immediately brings the menu and tea. Really, in a way, this is the best part. The ruddy glow of the paper lantern, like heat on our faces, the tiny enameled teacups warming our hands, the hot tea scalding our hunger, and the surprising, welcoming heft of the menu, handprinted in Chinese characters, with what must be very approximate explanations in English of some of the dishes, also handprinted in the black ink of calligraphers. Each time we come here, the menu has grown longer. Once a dish has been offered, it is never deleted, and now the menu is pages and pages long, so long that we'll never read through it all, never live long enough, perhaps, to sample all the food in just this one tucked-away neighborhood Chinese restaurant. The pages are unnumbered, and we can never remember where we left off reading the last time we were here. Was it the chrysanthemum pot served traditionally in autumn when the flowers are in full bloom? Are the almond jelly with lychees and loquats? A poet wrote this menu, Tinker says between sips of tea. Yes, but if there's a poet in the house, then why doesn't this place have a real name, something like the Red Lantern, instead of merely being called the Chinese Laundry by default? The professor replies, wiping the steam from his glasses with a paper napkin from the dispenser on the table. I sort of like the Chinese laundry myself. It's got a solid working class ring. Red lantern is cliche, precious chinoiserie. Tinker argues. They never agree. Say you two, I thought we were here to devour aesthetics, not debate them. Here, there's nothing of heaven or earth that can't be consumed. Nothing they haven't found a way to turn into a delicacy. Pine nut porridge, cassia blossom buns. Fish fragrance sauce pigeon, swallow's nest soup, a soup indigenous to the shore of the South China Sea, nest of pre-digested seaweed from the beaks of swifts, the gelatinous material hardened to form a small translucent cup. Sea urchin roe, pickled jellyfish, tripe with ginger and peppercorns, five fragrance grouper cheeks, cloud ears, spun sugar apple. Ginkgo nuts and golden needles, which are the buds of lilies, purple seaweed, bitter melon. Nothing of heaven and earth that cannot be combined, transmuted. No borders in a walk that can't be crossed. It's instructive. One can't help nourishing the imagination as well as the body. We order, knowing we won't finish all they'll bring. And that no matter how carefully we ponder our choices, will be served instead whatever the cook has made today. After supper, sharing segments of a blood orange and sipping tea, we ceremoniously crack open our fortune cookies and read aloud our fortunes as if consulting the I Ching. 
Sorrow is born of excessive joy. Try another. Poverty is the common fate of scholars. Does that sound like a fortune to you? Tinker asks. I certainly hope not, the professor says. When a finger points to the moon, the imbecile looks at the finger. What kind of fortunes are these? These aren't fortune cookies. These are proverb cookies, Tinker says. In the year of the rat, you will be lucky in love. Now that's more like it. What year is this? The year of the dragon, according to the placemat. Fuel alone will not light a fire. Say, did anyone turn off the Bunsen burner when we left? The mention of the lab makes a signal for the check. It's time we headed back. A new theory was brewing there when we left, and now our enthusiasm rekindled. We return in the snow. It has begun to snow. Through thick, crumbling flakes mixed with wafting cinders that would pass for snowflakes except for the way the wind is fanning their edges to sparks. A night of white flakes and streaming orange cinders, strange and beautiful, until we turn the corner and stare up at our laboratory. Flames occupy the top floor of the building. Smoke billows out of the skylight from which the city moon has retreated. On the floor below, through radiant, buckling windows, we can see the mannequins from the dressmaker's showroom. Naked, wigs on fire, they appear to gyrate lewdly before they topple. On the next floor down, in the instrument repair shop, accordions wheeze in the smoke, violins seethe like green kindling, and the saxophones dissolve into a lava of molten brass cascading over a window ledge. While on the ground floor, in the display window, the animals in the taxidermist shop have begun to hiss and snap as if fire had returned them to life in the wild. We stare helplessly, still clutching the carryout containers of the food we were unable to finish from the blissfully innocent meal we sat sharing while our apparatus, our theories, our formulas, and years of research, all that people refer to as their work, were bursting into flame. Along empty, echoing streets, sirens are screaming like victims. Already, a crowd has gathered. Look at that seedy old mother go up. A white kid in dreadlock says to his girlfriend, who looks like a runaway waif. She answers, cool. And I remember how in what now seems another life. I watched fires as a kid, sometimes fires that a gang of us, calling ourselves the matchheads, had set. I remember how later, in another time, if not another life, I once snapped a photograph of a woman I was with as she watched a fire blaze out of control along a river in Chicago. She was still married then. Her husband, whom I'd never met, was in a veteran's hospital, clinically depressed after the war in Vietnam. At least, that's what she told me about him. Thinking back, I sometimes wonder if she even had a husband. She'd come to Chicago with me for a fling, her word. I thought at the time that we were just fooling around, also her words. Words we both used in place of others like fucking, our making love, our adultery. It was more comfortable and safer for me to think of things between us as fooling around, but when I offhandedly mentioned that to her, she became furious, and instead of fooling around, we spent our weekend in Chicago arguing and ended up having a terrible time. It was a Sunday afternoon in early autumn, 
probably in the year of the rat, and we were sullenly driving out of the city. Along the north branch of the river, a factory was burning. I pulled over and parked, dug a camera out of my duffel, and we walked to a bridge to watch the fire. But it's not the fire itself that I remember, even though the blaze ultimately spread across the city sky like a dusk that rose from the earth rather than descended. The fire, as I recall it, is merely a backdrop compressed within the boundaries of the photograph I took of her. She has just looked away from the blaze toward the camera. Her elbows lean against the peeling gray railing of the bridge. She's wearing the black silk blouse that she bought at a second-hand shop on Clark Street the day before. Looking for clothes from the past in second-hand stores was an obsession of hers. Going junking, she called it. A silver Navajo bracelet has slid up her arm over a black silk sleeve. How thin her wrists appear. There's a ring whose gem I know is a moonstone on the index finger of her left hand and a tarnished silver band around her thumb. She was left-handed, and it pleased her that I was, too, as if we both belonged to the same minority group. Her long hair is a shade of auburn all the more intense for the angle of late afternoon sunlight. She doesn't look sullen or angry so much as fierce, although later... Studying her face in the photo, I'll come to see that beneath her expression there's a look less recognizable and more desperate. Not loneliness, exactly, but aloneness. A look I'd seen cross her face more than once, but wouldn't have thought to identify if the photo hadn't caught it. Behind her, ominous gray smoke plumes out of a sprawling old brick factory with the soon-to-be-scorched white lettering of Gutman and Company Tanners visible along the side of the building. Driving back to Iowa in the dark, I'll think that she's asleep, as exhausted as I am from our strained weekend. Then she'll break the miles of silence between us to tell me that, disappointing though it was, the trip was worth it if only for the two of us on the bridge, watching the fire together. She loved being a part of the excitement, she'll say, loved the spontaneous way we swerved over and parked in order to take advantage of the spectacle, a conflagration, the length of a city block, reflected over the greasy water, and a red fireboat, neat as a toy, sirening up the river, spouting white geysers while the flames roared back. Interstate 80 shoots before us in the length of our racing headlight beams, we're on a stretch between towns, surrounded by flat black fields, and the candle power of the occasional distant farmhouse is insufficient to illuminate the enormous horizon lurking in the dark, like the drop-off at the edge of the planet. In the speeding car, her voice sounds disembodied, the voice of a shadow, barely above a whisper, yet it's clear, as if the cover of night and the hypnotic momentum of the road have freed her to reveal secrets. There seem to be so many secrets about her. She tells me that as the number of strangers attracted by the fire swelled into a crowd, she could feel a secret current connecting the two of us, like the current that passed between us in bed the first time we made love, when we came at the same moment as if taken by surprise. It happened only that once. Do you remember how, after that, I cried? She asks. Yes. You were trying to console me. 
I know you thought I was feeling terribly guilty, but I was crying because the way we fit together seemed suddenly so familiar, as if there was some old bond between us. I felt flooded with relief, as if I'd been missing you for a long time without quite realizing it, as if you'd returned to me after I thought I'd never see you again. I didn't say any of that because it sounds like some kind of channeling crap. Anyway, today the same feeling came over me on the bridge. I was afraid I might start crying again, except this time what would be making me cry was a thought that if we were lovers from past lives who had waited lifetimes for the present to bring us back together, then how sad it was to waste the present the way we did this weekend. I keep my eyes on the road, not daring to glance at her or even to answer for fear of interrupting the intimate, almost compulsive way she seems to be speaking. I had this sudden awareness, she continues, of how the moments of our lives go out of existence before we're conscious of having lived them. It's only a relatively few moments that we get to keep and carry with us for the rest of our lives. Those moments are our lives. Or maybe it's more like those moments are the dots and what we call our lives are the lines we draw between them, connecting them into imaginary pictures of ourselves. You know, like those mythical pictures of constellations traced between stars. I remember how as a kid I actually expected to be able to look up and see Pegasus spread out against the night. And when I couldn't, it seemed like a trick had been played on me, like a fraud. I thought, hey, if this is all there is to it, then I could reconnect the stars in any shape I wanted. I could create the Ken and Barbie constellations. I'm rambling. I'm following you. Go on. She moves closer to me. I realize we can never predict when those few special moments will occur, she says. How, if we hadn't met, I wouldn't be standing on a bridge watching a fire, and how there are certain people not that many, who enter one's life with the power to make those moments happen. Maybe that's what falling in love means, the power to create for each other the moments by which we define ourselves. And there you were, right on cue, taking my picture. I had an impulse to open my blouse, to take off my clothes and pose naked for you. I wanted you. I wanted not to fool around. I wanted to fuck you like there's no tomorrow against the railing of the bridge. I've been thinking about that ever since, this whole drive back. I turn to look at her, but she says, No, don't look. Keep driving. Shh, don't talk. I'm sealing your lips. I can hear the rustle beside me as she raises her skirt and a faint smack of moistness, and then, kneeling on the seat, she extends her hand and outlines my lips with her slick fingertips. I can smell her scent. The car seems filled with it. I can feel the heat of her body radiating beside me before she slides back along the seat until she's braced against the car door. I can hear each slight adjustment of her body, the rustle of fabric against her skin, the elastic sound of her panties rolled past her hips, the faintly wet, possibly imaginary tick her fingertips are making. Oh, baby, she sighs. I've slowed down to 55, and as semis pull into the passing lane and rumble by us, their headlights sweep through the car, and I catch glimpses of her as if she had been imprinted by lightning on my peripheral vision. Disheveled, her skirt hiked over her slender legs, 
the fingers of her left hand disappearing into the V of her rolled-down underpants. You can watch if you promise to keep one eye on the road, she says, and turns on the radio as if flicking on a nightlight that coats her bare legs with its viridescence. What was playing? The volume was so low I barely heard. A violin from some improperly tuned-in university station fading in and out until it disappeared into static, banished, perhaps, to those phantom frequencies where Bix Beiderbeck still blew on his coronet. We were almost to Davenport on the river, the town where Beiderbeck was born, and one station or another there always seemed to be playing his music, as if the syncopated licks of Roaring Twenties jazz, which it burned Bix up so quickly, still resonated over the prairie like his ghost. You can't cross I-80 between Iowa and Illinois without going through the Biderbeck belt, I told her when we picked up a station broadcasting a Bix tribute on our way into Chicago. She'd never heard of Bix until then and wasn't paying him much attention until the DJ quoted a remark by Eddie Condon, an old Chicago guitarist, that Bix's sound came out like a girl saying yes. That was only three days ago, and now we were returning somehow changed from that couple who set out for a fling. We cross the Biderbeck Belt back into Iowa, and as we drive past the Davenport exits, the nearly deserted highway is illuminated like an empty ballpark by the bluish overhead lights. Her eyes close with concentration she hardly notices as a semi, outlined in red clearance lights, almost sideswipes us. The car shudders in the backdraft as the truck pulls away, its horn bellowing. One eye on the road, she cautions. That wasn't my fault. We watch its taillights disappear, and then we're alone in the highway dark again, traveling along my favorite stretch, where, in the summer, the fields are planted with sunflowers as well as corn, and you have to be on the alert for pheasants bolting across the road. Baby, take it out, she whispers. The desire to touch her is growing unbearable, and yet I don't want to stop, don't want the drive to end. I'm waiting for you, she says. I'm right on the edge, just waiting for you. We're barely doing 40 when we pass what looks like the same semi, trimmed in red clearance lights, parked along the shoulder. I'm watching her while trying to keep an eye on the road so I don't notice the truck pulling back onto the highway behind us or its headlights in the rearview mirror gaining on us fast until its high beams flash on, streaming through the car with a near-blinding intensity. I steady the wheel, waiting for the whoomp of the trailer's vacuum as it hurtles by, but the truck stays right on our rear bumper, its enormous radiator grill looming through the rear window, and its headlights reflecting off our mirrors and windshield with a glare that makes us squint. Caught in the high beams, her hair flares like a halo about to burst into flame. She's brushed her skirt down over her legs and looks a little wild. What's his problem? Is he stoned or on uppers or something? She shouts over the rumble of his engine, and then he hits his horn, obliterating her voice with a diesel blast. I stomp on the gas. 
We're in the right lane, and since he refuses to pass, I signal and pull into the outside lane to let him go by. But he merely switches lanes, too, hanging on our tail the entire time. The speedometer jitters over 90, but he stays right behind us, his high beams pinning us like spotlights, his horn bellowing. Is he crazy? She shouts. I know what's happening. After he came close to sideswiping us outside Davenport, he must have gone on driving down the empty highway with the image of her illuminated by those bluish lights preying on his mind. Maybe he's divorced and lonely. Maybe his wife is cheating on him, something gone terribly wrong for him, and whatever it is, seeing her exposed like that has revealed his own life as a sorry thing, and that realization has turned to meanness and anger. There's an exit a mile off, and he sees it too, and swings his rig back to the inside lane to try and cut me off. But with the pedal to the floor, I beat him to the right-hand lane, and I keep it floored, although I know I can't manage a turnoff at the speed. He knows that too, and stays close behind, ignoring my right turn signal, laying on his horn as if to warn me not to try slowing down for this exit that there's no way of stopping 60,000 pounds of tractor-trailer doing over 90. But just before we hit the exit, I swerve back into the outside lane, and for a moment he pulls even with us, staying on the inside as we race past the exit so as to keep it blocked. That's when I yell to her, Hang on! and pump the brakes, and we screech along the outside lane, fishtailing and burning rubber while the truck goes barreling by, its air brakes whooshing. The car skids onto the gravel shoulder, kicking up a cloud of dust, smoky in the headlights, but it's never really out of control, and by the time the semi lurches to a stop, I have the car in reverse, veering back to the exit, hoping no one else is speeding toward us down I-80. It's the Plainview exit, and I gun into a turn, north onto an empty two-lane, racing towards some place named Long Grove. I keep checking the mirror for his headlights, but the highway behind us stays dark, and finally she says, Baby, slow down. The radio is still playing static, and I turn it off. Christ, she says. At first I thought he was just your everyday flaming asshole, but he was a genuine psychopath. A real lunatic, all right, I agree. You think he was just waiting there for us in his truck? She asks. That's so spooky, especially when you think he's still out there driving west. Makes you wonder how many other guys are out there driving with their heads full of craziness and rage. It's a vision of the road at night that I can almost see. Men, not necessarily vicious Some just numb or desperately lonely, driving to the whining companionship of country music, their headlights too scattered and isolated for anyone to realize that they're all part of a convoy. We're a part of it, too. I was thinking, oh no, I can't die now like this, she says. We'll be too sexually frustrating, like death was the ultimate tease. You know what I was afraid of? I tell her dying with my trousers open. She laughs and continues laughing until there's a hysterical edge to it. I think that truck driver was jealous of you. He knows you're a lucky guy tonight, she gasps, winded 
and kicks off her sandal in order to slide a bare foot along my leg. Here we are together, still alive. I bring her foot to my mouth and kiss it, clasping her leg where it's thinnest, as if my hand were an ankle bracelet, then slide my hand beneath her skirt, along her thigh to the edge of her panties, a crease of surprising heat from which my finger comes away slick. I told you, she moans, a lucky guy. I turn onto the next country road. It's unmarked, not that it matters. I know that out here, sooner or later, it will cross a gravel road, and when it does, I turn onto the gravel and after a while turn again at the intersection of a dirt road that winds into fields of an increasingly deeper darkness, fragrant with the rich Iowa earth and resonating with insect choirs amassed for one last sanctus. I'm not even sure what direction we're traveling in any longer, let alone where we're going, but when my high beams catch a big turtle crossing the road, I feel we've arrived. A car rolls to a stop on a narrow plank bridge spanning a culvert. The bridge, not much longer than our car, is veiled on either side by overhanging trees, cottonwoods probably, and flanked by cattails as high as the drying stalks of corn in the acres we've been passing. The turtle, his snapper's jaw unmistakable in the lights, looks mossy and ancient, and we watch him complete his trek across the road and disappear into the reeds before I flick off the headlights. Sitting silently in the dark, we listen to the crinkle of the cooling engine and to the peepers we've disturbed starting up again from beneath the bridge. When we quietly step out of the car, we can hear frogs plopping into the water. Look at the stars, she whispers. If Pegasus was up there, I say, you'd see him from here. Do you have any idea where we are? She asks. Nope, totally lost. We can find our way back when it's light. The back seat of a car at night on a country road. Adultery has a disconcerting way of turning adults back into teenagers. We make love, then manage to doze off for a while in the back seat, wrapped together in a checkered tablecloth we'd used once on a picnic, which I still had folded in the trunk. In the pale, early light, I shoot the rest of the film on the roll, a close-up of her, framed in part by the line of the checkered tablecloth, which she's wearing like a shawl around her bare shoulders, and another, closer still, of her face framed by her tangled auburn hair and out the open window behind her, velvety cattails blurred in the shallow depth of field. A picture of her posing naked outside the car in sunlight that streams through countless rents in the veil of the cottonwoods. A picture of her kneeling on the muddy planks of the little bridge, her hazel eyes glancing up at the camera, her mouth still a yard from my body, already shaped as if I've stepped to her across that distance. What's missing is a shot I never snapped, the one the trucker tried to steal, which drove him over whatever edge he was balanced on, and which, perhaps, still has him riding highways, searching each passing car from the perch of his cab for that glimpse he won't get again her hair disheveled, her body braced against the car door, eyes squeezed closed, lips twisted, skirt hiked up, 
pelvis rising to her hand. Years after, she called me out of nowhere. Do you still have those photos of me? She asked. No, I told her. I burned them. Good, she said, sounding pleased. Not relieved so much as flattered. I just suddenly wondered. Then she hung up. But I lied. I'd kept them all these years, along with a few letters, part of a bundle of personal papers in a manila envelope that I moved with me from place to place. I had them hidden away in the back of a file cabinet in the laboratory, although certainly they had no business being there. Now what I told her was true. They were fueling the flames. Outlined in firelight, the kid in dreadlocks kisses the waif. His hand glides over the back of her fringe jacket of dirty white buckskin and settles on the torn seat of her faded jeans. She stands on tiptoe on the tops of his gym shoes and hooks her fingers through the empty belt loops of his jeans so that their crotches are aligned. When he boosts her closer and grinds against her, she says, Wow, and giggles. I felt it move. Fires get me horny, he says. The roof around the skylight implodes, sending a funnel of sparks into the whirl of snow, and the crowd ahs collectively as the beakers in the laboratory pop and flare. Gapers have continued to arrive down side streets, appearing out of the snowfall as if drawn by a great bonfire signaling some secret rite. Gangbangers in their jackets engraved with symbols, gorgeous transvestites from Wharf Street, stevedores, and young sailors, their fresh tattoos contracting in the cold. The homeless, layered in overcoats, burlap tied around their feet, have abandoned their burning ash cans in order to gather here, just as the shivering, scantily clad hookers have abandoned their neon corners, as the Guatemalan dishwashers have abandoned their scalding suds, as a baker whose face and hair, the ghostly white of flour, has abandoned his oven. Open hydrants gush into the gutters. The street is seamed with deflated hoses, but the firemen stand as if paired off with the hookers, as if for a moment they've become voyeurs like everyone else, transfixed as the brick walls of our lab blaze, suddenly lucent, suspended on the cushion of smoke, and the red-hot skeleton of the time machine begins to radiate from the inside out. A rosy light plays off the upturned faces of the crowd like the glow of an enormous red lantern, a paper lantern that once seemed fragile, almost delicate, but now obliterates the very time and space it once illuminated. A paper lantern raging out of control with nothing but itself left to consume. <sighs> the professor shivers wiping his fog glasses as if to clear away the opaque gleam reflecting off their lenses. Goddamn cold. All right, Tinker mutters, stamping his feet. For once, they agree. The wind gusts, fanning the bitter chill of a night, even as it fans the flames, and instinctively we all edge closer to the fire. That was ZZ Packer reading Paper Lantern by Stuart Dybeck, which was published in The New Yorker in 1995 and reprinted in Best American Short. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. 
Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. Stories, 1996. So, Zizi, this story starts with this kind of kooky sci-fi premise with these scientists working away in their sort of crazy laboratory late at night mm-hmm. and progresses through the Chinese restaurant, the fire, to a much more realistic central nugget of a story. Why do you think Dybeck has this contrast? Why do you think he starts with things that are so unbelievable from the, the time machine to the sort of idea that this tiny Chinese restaurant would have swallows' nests from, you know, the South China Sea. Mm-hmm. Uh, why, why the slow progression away from unreality to reality? I think that there's this very odd but beautiful sort of decentering mechanism that occurs when you propose this world that's supposedly so unlike our own or this kind of machine that's going to somehow transport you back in time. And then you're kind of in one mode, which is sci-fi, futuristic mode. And then what he seems to do is say, well, that's not so different from the way our minds operate in terms of memory. But before he gets there with the picture he ends up having to go through this path of time through the Chinese laundry slash Chinese restaurant, which seems to sort of ground us in all these sensory details. Mm -hmm. So by the time that we get to the picture, it seems as though we're ready for some still image that forces you as the reader to slow down, slow your heartbeat and kind of remember a time when you felt the same way. He talked in one interview about the way he moves back and forth between fantasy and, and naturalism. He says he said in this interview, in, in many of my stories, in order to go back and forth across the subjective border between the naturalistic and the fantastic, my characters need a doorway, some portal through which the character can step into non-ordinary experience. And once, once that step is taken, perception is changed for good. And the doorway here seems to be fire. You know, mm-hmm. each, each scene change happens with a fire, but... Um, It's interesting to me that instead of going towards fantasy, he's going away from fantasy in this story. Yeah. I mean, by the time that you end the story, everyone's gathered around the fire, but it's this very real fire of this thing that seems completely imaginary. But what he's sort of linking it all by is 
it's almost as though he's saying you can't have these memory flashes without some ignition that's going on in your soul in some way. And even the things that don't necessarily look like fire or read as fire are kind of fire signs in the story. I mean, if you think about the headlights that are strobing from the Mm -hmm. trucker, I mean, and then her hair is illuminated in this halo. All of these are these images that flash you into from one scene to another scene and from one memory that Mm -hmm. the narrator is having to another memory. And by the end, it's not fantastical. I mean, it's not a time machine, but it is the time machine of our minds. I mean, our minds are time machines. Right. I mean, he's saying that memory is a time machine. Yeah. Yeah. And I just think that that's, I mean, it's, it's not, I guess, novel, but the way in which he's saying it and showing it are extremely beautiful. The woman in the story talks about how we take these few finite moments in life and and carry them with us, and those, in a sense, become our lives. And one senses that they're, in a sense, still photographs for Dybeck and that these little flashes are how he builds a life. Nabokov does that, too, and there's a a story called Spring and Fialta, and it's in some ways very similar, and the concentration is on connecting the dots rather than looking at the sort of constellation itself. So it's sort of the process of going from one moment to another moment to another moment. And for her, she has this sort of rather brusque way of saying, oh, okay, well, (laughs) glad you burned them. But for him, he carries these pictures around from place to place to place. And it's just this sort of really beautiful and touching way of seeing this brief flicker of an affair that still has its lasting effects with him and, and, and hasn't really sort of burned off or gone away. I asked Ibeck about the, the genesis of this story, and he said that it started off as a prose poem and then expanded to become a story. Do you think you feel that in the, in the language here or in the construction? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that there's this sort of almost hallucinatory way in which he can construct these sentences that sort of keep going and going and going. And you don't hear line breaks. You hear images that keep deepening and deepening. And it's like seeing a lot of Rothko paintings all at once where you're kind of entering this field of pure image and color. So, And to me, that's what a prose poem does as opposed to like lyric poetry. And even though his style is incredibly lyrical, what you really get from it is just that there's there are images and images and images that keep allowing you to fall in deeper and deeper into this black hole of image and memory and time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I can completely believe that it started as a prose poem. Do you think the story would work if you removed the frame, if it were just the story of that weekend fling? No, I don't. I feel as though whenever we see these stories of adultery, they either sort of go in one or two directions. And the one direction is that it has to sort of end with this moral sort of self-flagellation. And the other direction is that uh, they are capriciously sort of going on with their lives and everyone else is affected by whatever they've done. But in this particular story, both the characters, the narrator and um, his lover are on the sort of edge of their lives and only together are they able to sort of form one cohesive whole. 
you know, she asked the question, what if we were lovers from the past life? And then if so, we've kind of wasted our present by doing what we've done, what we've Mm -hmm. done. Mm -hmm. And around that is the idea that life is extremely ephemeral and fire is a sort of perfect image for that. So if we didn't have this frame of time and this machine or this way to manipulate time, but also fire and something that could ignite quickly, but has the power to be destructive, but also incredibly beautiful and all consuming, Mm -hmm. then I, I just don't think that it would work quite the yeah, same way. It, it's it very allows, image-based. It allows them to be amoral about it. Yeah, yeah. And you and the, and the reader doesn't necessarily care about the morality of it as well. I mean, the reader can, in turn, be amoral about it. What do you think is going on with that trucker? You know, why? <laughs> why has this little, you know, flash of seeing the sexual moment in another person's car set him off? I guess you could look at it as pure voyeurism. But there's also something just that David, I don't know if he's deliberately doing this, but somehow like sort of allegorical about the trucker as though if you as a reader choose to be in the position of the trucker, then you choose to be in a position of taking some sort of high ground or some kind of like ground in which you've made a decision about these people. Mm-hmm. And that's the opposite of what I think he's trying to do with the story. And as you mentioned, the sort of amorality is sort of looking at this relationship in the context of what it is, as opposed to looking at it from the context of our kind of moral universe. Right, right. The, the trucker brings a certain judgment to bear yeah. on what's going on, which which doesn't seem to be part it's of almost, the moment. Yeah, it's almost like a, a stray character from Flannery O'Connor kind of, <laughs> kind of got in there. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I think Dybeck sort of casts a little bit of doubt on the narrator's position as well as, as everything else. You know, he has that moment where the narrator takes the photograph of the woman in front of the fire, and when he looks at this photograph, he, he sort of studies it and he sees this essential aloneness in her expression. Mm-hmm. And she tells him that that was the moment that she was most feeling this, you know, bond of connectedness, this electric current between them. Mm-hmm. In a sense, in her mind at that moment, she was least alone. So you, you get just a moment of thinking, ah, he doesn't really know her. He can't really read her. How can we read her? That's one of the things I love about what Dabick does in his stories. I mean, so often there are these moments of missed connection between, you know, males and females. And the narrator, usually a male narrator, is thinking one thing or remembering this moment in a particular way. And, and it seems that it says something very essential about who writes the sort of record. So you only have the teller telling his side. But you always have this ghost of all the other possible narratives that there are. But I just love the sexy way, at least for me, the way he does the sort of male-female dynamic in which the male is usually extremely carnal, but also sensitive. And the woman to him is somewhat unreadable, inscrutable. But we as the reader get her side because Dybeck is able to sort of talk around and show around his narrators. Mm -hmm. So I just love that because you get this gyroscopic sense of what love and sexuality and sensuality are all about. That long list of of phantom possibilities, it's a little like the the menu in the Chinese restaurant that keeps being added to and you'll never in your life have time to try all these things. 
And even then, no matter what you order, you're just going to get whatever the chef wants to give yeah, you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I love how it kind of forces you through this exotic portal yeah. of just here are all these things that are sort of all come from nature and built from nature, but these things that you just don't really see being together. But still, it's a sort of like incredible sounding and you want to be able to experience it. And it's kind of like that's what he's sort of saying. This is this menu list of love and memory or something. Exactly. Thank you so much, Zizi. Oh, thanks. It was great. Zizi Packer is the author of the story collection Drinking Coffee Elsewhere. Her fiction has been appearing in The New Yorker since 2000. You can subscribe to this podcast or download previous episodes in the iTunes store. Also, the tablet edition of the magazine is available in the App Store, and when you download issues, you can hear writers reading their own stories. You can also download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or audible.com. Join the conversation on our Facebook page. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by NewYorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.